Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 295, an interview with Maya Vincor, the author of Workflows, Stalinist Liquids, and Russian Labor Cultures. Today we're talking to Maya Vinokur, Assistant Professor in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies at New York University, and author of the upcoming book, Workflows, Stalinist Liquids in Russian Labor Culture. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Vinokur. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start off with, can you define to my listeners what you mean by workflows? Sure. Uh... Uh, it started out as a play on words, um, but then became kind of a representation of what the entire book is about, which is the a certain kind of conceptualization of working uh, and of the human body and of really the universe at large. Um, as this, you know, that's that's where the liquidity and the flow um, come in. So. Um, Yes, yeah, something that began as a uh, as a pun that was shorthand for me as I was um, working on the book, then kind of came to stand in for its central idea. Yeah, you know, in the beginning of your introduction, I, I there was a telling quote about your book, how you know in academia, the acceptance or non-acceptance of works, but you talked about a famous toast of late Soviet dissidents. Yeah. And it was, quote, to the success of our hopeless cause. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that because I think it has a much deeper meaning. And you care to share your thoughts on that one? Um, yeah. I mean, again, this is something uh, I think you're you're drawing on something that I mentioned in my acknowledgments, like at the very beginning. Um, and it's just when you it, when you for me and like when you write a book, it's obviously a very long process with many pitfalls, um, a lot of potential for the book just not coming into being. And um, at the risk of uh, stealing valor from late Soviet dissidents, I, in a tongue-in-cheek way, quoted um, one of their dicta, which, um, I don't know, like, it just it just feels like something that is very typical of that milieu. It's ironic, it's self-deprecating. Um, it, while avoiding making any predictions about the future, it nonetheless affirms that the undertaking in question is a worthwhile one, right? Um, and yeah, it's also, mainly it's humorous, which I appreciate. Yeah, the last author I spoke to was like, uh looked at Soviet say cuisine and it's like tired of celebrations. We found, you know, bread, celebration. We found toilet paper, celebration. I'm tired of celebrations. It was this whole idea of when would communism actually arrive? Yes. Because we talked about, you know, we, we're marching toward communism where everything would be great. And I think Khrushchev said it in the early 1960s. You know, we're on our way. Within 20 years, we'll have, you know, pure communism. And the statement was always, but are you going to feed us while we're on our march toward communism? And, and there was a lot of that kind of dark, wry humor that permeated Soviet society in that time. So when you, when you had that quote, it was just popped 
to me and and I know to my listeners because I've used these terms so often. I love that. Uh, but how would you define Stalinist liquids in Russian labor culture versus the pre-revolutionary Russia? Well, one of the things that the book does is it actually tries to connect the pre-revolutionary period with the post-revolutionary period and argue that there was a lot of continuity in um, conceptions of the human body, understanding of what work could and should be. I mean, the basis of Soviet ideology, at least nominally, was Marxism, which is a product of the 19th century, not the 20th. I mean, it un- obviously, it underwent a lot of transformation, um, especially uh, under Stalin and became something totally different. Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism, um, just like a totally that's very, you know, ultimately has not a huge amount to do with like Marxism as such. But many of the threads that I examine um, in the kind of the early Stalin period are things that came out of the 19th century, in particular, revolutionary utopianism. Like so much of so much of the inspiration for the Bolshevik Revolution. And I'm just talking about like ideologically and representationally, not necessarily uh, like how the actual revolution transpired and, you know, the the more like pragmatic and venal motivating factors that drove may have driven events, but just on the level of ideology. Um, so much of that came out of the late 19th century. So kind of the first part of the book is all about um, 19th century figures, which might be better or lesser known. Um, I talk about Tolstoy, but I also talk about the the cosmist philosopher Nikolai Fyodorov, who I think is better known now, maybe just like in our field, but he is probably never going to be as well known to the general public as Tolstoy. It's a number of the people that I'm thinking of as Bakunin, uh, Kopotkin, some of those who were the, you know, you might say instigators of new thinking mm. in, in Russia. Mm. Who else uh, would you, you know, talk about in your book and, and what other figures? Because we've talked about them in our podcast in the past, but, you know, Fedorov, I, I had not heard of before, surprisingly. So now I'm going to, you know, add him onto my new podcast, which will be on people that had influence on world history but we might not know about. And so, yeah, I mean, once, once you start learning about Fyodorov's philosophy, you will, it, it is, it is shocking um, how extremely well it fits into this, this general kind of like, you uto- this, I don't know, it's a re- utopian revolutionary foment at the end of the 20th century, where there's a million different factions and a million different tendencies. And they all like weave together into this, often strange uh, tapestry, I guess. But some of the other figures who were important to me just in this book um, were Maxim Gorky, um, who is somebody else who I think of as really straddling the 19th and 20th centuries. The, the Some of the works for which he was most canonized in the Soviet period, like his novel Mother, for example, are, predate the revolution. Um, so already, like on that level, you have this like weird play with time, which is one of the important threads in my book. Um, and then another figure is Gorky's rival and ideological uh, enemy, 
um, Alexander Bogdanov, who um, that's that's a pseudonym, but he was a um, like also an important figure uh, in you know late nineteenth century Russian Marxist philosophy. Um, he and Lenin like polemicized with each other, um, and ultimately he he made it into the 1920s and as i argue in the book has uh, a lot of influence on the formation of early soviet culture through his uh utopian project of blood transfusion as a method of rejuvenating people's bodies and minds wow how fascinating uh, another person that I, we did an episode on maxim gorky who was just absolutely fascinating but bogdanov is somebody else that I think we want to investigate a little bit more about. Uh, one of your chapters is the organic turn, labor mm. technology in the body in early Soviet culture. What is the organic turn? Mm. Um, so for me, this is kind of like a, a counterintuitive aspect of early Soviet culture, maybe. I think that when we think about in particular, like pre-World War II Stalinism, maybe one of the most prominent ideas that might come to our mind is industrialization and collectivization and a, this forcible attempt to uh, bring Russia out of its quote-unquote backwardness um, and into line with 20th century industrial civilization. And thinking about industrialization obviously like brings to mind machinery and uh, automatization, the abandonment of hand tools in favor of more like sophisticated apparatus. Uh, but what I observed in like on the on the cultural level um, as I examined the 19 late 1920s and early 1930s was almost an opposite movement uh, away from a technologized conception of the universe in which machines uh, supplant, or augment human labor and toward a much more really like human body based form of work where like, instead of worrying about machines, we're more concerned about modifying the human body, not necessarily to make it more machine-like, but instead to optimize its physical energies and channel them away from useless stuff um, and toward the grander scheme um, envisioned by Stalin. Uh, yeah, so it's, yeah. So it's, so that's, what's organic about it, right? It's like a, it's a, it's a turn back toward the body and away from mechanization that we might associate with mass industrialization and collectivization of agriculture. It's a, it's a, it's an anti-modern project ultimately in the middle of modernism. Yeah. It's uh, kind of the glorification of the person that you would create these cults of these individuals who would perform incredible feats, whether yes. they're farmers or miners. Uh, you know, when I did one of my episodes was about uh, Life Magazine did a whole article about Stalin. And a friend of mine gave me the copy for my birthday. And it was just what we thought of as Stalinism at the time, because this was during World War II. Yes. And we were trying to you know, boost our ally at the time against Germany. And it was talking about how they really glorified these individuals 
and their bodies. And they talked about how incredible they were to take care of themselves. So when you talk about this in your book, it's so much like what we discussed in the podcast. In Stalin's period, as much as he tortured and you know eliminated his enemies and perceived enemies, he also glorified those people as to, you see, this is how a person should be in a communist society, this right. glorified human. But one of the things that uh, becomes evident is that those two tendencies are kind of two sides of the same coin. You when you when you glorify people, when you glorify individuals, right? We have to sort of consider the manner in which it's occurring. Like if you think about Sicanivism, for example, which was a movement in the mid late 1930s that started with this one coal miner Alexei Stakhanov, who was supposed mm -hmm. to have performed this like unbelievable of coal mining um, and, be, you know, had a movement named after him. The Of course, he's being glorified for his basically fantastical productivity. And it really was fantastical because he didn't actually, he had a lot of help um, and he didn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't, the feat was not one person's accomplishment, um, actually, but it was staged that way. Um, so already we have something that is a performance um, and that isn't, it's kind of an, an illusion. And then like what that glorification of that particular individual does is it creates an unrealistic standard for everybody else. So if Stakhanov is able to overfulfill the norm to such an extent, um, like why aren't you? Like what's wrong with you, average Soviet citizen, that you are not... Um, performing, you know, 300% of your work norm during your shift. Um, and so then if you aren't doing that, if you're not able to channel your energies to optimize your labor production, then perhaps something is wrong with you. Perhaps you're a saboteur. Perhaps you are intentionally trying to wreck the Soviet project. Um, and so it creates this, like, the flip side is very dark. So it's not really, it's not about valuing human life and it's not about glorification. It's not about placing value on the life of the individual or the integrity of the individual's body. It's, it's a very, it's a very harsh utopian presentation um, that is very theatrical also. That's like a side issue. That was very interesting because when we did the uh, uh, episodes about the gulags, mm. they would show these movies about these heroic people. And they're like, what's wrong with all of you? That's why you're here. You have not performed as you should have. You're saboteurs, as you mentioned. You're trying to bring down the whole idea of Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism. You are the ones who are making it so that it doesn't work right now. Yeah. Uh, and and how many of them suffered through that period. And, and, and I read a lot of the quotes from these people they felt bad themselves. They're like, maybe we didn't do what we were supposed to. Maybe we are the problem. And yep. look at it from above and you're going, how delusional can you be? But if that's what you're fed all the time, saying, hey, what's wrong with you? Uh, what other point of view could you have? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the watchwords of the book, responsibilization. The idea, that, and again, this I think that this really... Uh, runs counter to stereotypes that people often have about Soviet socialism is it it's not collectivizing 
It's not highly technological the way it wants to present itself. Instead, it's kind of anti-modern. It's a return to the bare life of the human body. Um, if you examine the way that labor is actually performed in the gulag, it's not with sophisticated tools. It's people using like spades and hand carts and very um, untechnological means um, to re-educate themselves via labor. Uh, and it's also not as collective as you would think. It's quite atomizing because all the responsibility to remake oneself and then by extension to remake you know, the Soviet Union and then the whole world kind of in the socialist image falls on the shoulders of the individual. Like you're, you, it's, it is possible to hold one person personally responsible for like wrecking the entire project in a way. And it's very strange because it, it simultaneously places great value in a way on individuals, but it also makes everybody totally expendable. It makes everybody just kind of like raw material. That's another um, term that's important in my book. Like humans as raw material. Gordke was big on this, right? The idea of the human being as like a slab of marble or like a, a slab of rock, um, a, a natural element that needs to be worked on with like harsh tools, chisels, um, melting in the case of metal in order to become something, not like human beings who are intrinsically valuable. Yeah, we saw that with, you know, when you look at the building of St. Petersburg, and then you're looking at the White Sea canals that they tried to dig through and how similar they were from the 1700s to the 1930s, that they would use the same tools, the same methods, the same ideas, and with some of the same outcomes of all the people who died. I mean, in St. Petersburg, they say it's built on the bones of over 20,000 people. And you see in Stalinist times how many people suffered using the exact same tools and methodology, but this was the glorification of modernization. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is what's crazy about Stalinism is that it's such, and, and this is that like, to me, it's, it's this, um, what's fascinating about modernism, whether we're talking about Soviet modernism, or we're talking about like Nazism, uh, which shares a lot of features <laughs> with Stalinism. Um, the, what's striking is the the hybridity of kind of uh, modern seeming ideas and really atavistic execution. Because the thing about the the opportunities for um, uh, grandiose projects that were available in the early twentieth century, like there's just a lot more. There's a lot more possibility for uh, basically enslaving like millions of people. Than Peter the Great had just the 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 neither the media technology nor the like other forms of technology were available to Peter the Great in the same way. So even though there is this very backward looking aspect to Stalinism that I'm trying to like excavate in my book, we also can't forget that this is really consummately 20th century history. It couldn't have happened at any other time. It couldn't have happened in, in the, you know, in the 17th or 18th century in the same way. It, did, it happened in the United States with the, uh, the projects after the Great Depression in the 30s, where you built, you know, here in Nevada, we built the, uh, the Great Hoover Dam. It's the same as the individuals and the people together doing something, but it's each individual was responsible for what they had to do 
And, you know, it, it's, it did have this, you know, a different, how you might say, uh, milieu as to how they were presenting it to the people because you had television or you had movies, you had means of communication, which Peter did not have. Right. Stalin was very good at using media, as was Adolf Hitler, as was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, using the media and what he had at that time. And then we can see that today is, you know, in our Facebook, Twitter, or X, as they call it now, you know, uh, life now. But what I want to do is another chapter you had that I really was kind of stood out to me was I am a stream of bright joy. Mm. Daniel Carms and the liquid language of Stalinism. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because it was really a fascinating title. Sure. Um, so uh, I guess the types of people that I look at in the book fall into three categories, maybe. Um, I look at mainstream kind of official Stalinist discourse. So like Stalin's speeches, uh, public articles by figures like Maxim Gorky, who were heavily associated with the formation of early Soviet culture. Um, and then the second category is it's sort of like moving away from the most official, most canonical, uh, most accepted and mainstream area out onto what we might think of as the periphery. Um, oh, there's kind of a feedback loop between the two always. So I also look at fellow travelers. So authors who were, who were like, more or less marginal, um, and who were trying to navigate the new aesthetic and political standards in order to ply their trade. And then finally, I look at um, figures who would not or could not conform to the existing, um, you know, the emerging aesthetic dogmas of socialist realism, and who um, even though they were deeply influenced by the milieu in which they lived, were writing for the desk drawer without hope of publication. And so the chapter that you just mentioned about the Neil Harms is about such a person. So the Neil Harms was is an extremely important um, 20th century, an influential 20th century figure who's a large part of whose fame um, occurred after his death. And um, once his works began to circulate in some of that, so um, like informal, personally typed copies that people circulated in the late Soviet period, he was a great favorite of um, some of the dissident figures of the, you know, like post-war 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, he was hugely influential on 20th century um, Russian poetry and culture. But in his own time, he was known to a small circle of people. And otherwise, he wrote a lot of children's literature, because that was one place that authors could go who were not going to be adhering to the emerging standards by which adult literature was judged. Um, and so one of the points that I make is that no matter how marginal your positioning vis-a-vis -vis the mainstream, of the time in which you live, you can never fully escape it. And so what's interesting about Harms's writing to me is like often he's framed, he's framed as a tragic figure. I mean, he died in prison during the siege of Leningrad, having 
attempted to um, escape possible mobilization by kind of pleading insanity, but this got him placed into like the insane asylum section of the prison where he starved to death. Um, And his writing is often like satire. It's absurd and satirical. And it seems to be writing like very much against the prevailing official standards of the day. Um, And Hanus is also prone to statements like, like I hate proletarians, but he's like a sort of a trickster and provocateur. Um, And ultimately his work is also influenced by like those same standards and he can't get, basically he can't get away from the same kind of obsession with how much am I working? Am I working enough? Uh, did I do enough today? Um, a really famous collection of his work that has been published in English is called Today I Wrote Nothing because he kept a diary and like during one period of his life and he would record obsessively, not unlike someone like Tolstoy, by the way, who also was an obsessive recorder of his own experiences. Mm-hmm. He, would, he would talk every day. He would be like, today I wrote this. Or today I procrastinated all day. Today I wrote nothing, right? So this is like a common entry in his diary. So he's like really concerned with productive channeling of energy. And I think it's not a coincidence that he was having this concern at the same time when the culture all around him was also having it, albeit in a totally kind of different direction. How fascinating. And we have another episode of the podcast to talk about this. Daniel Arms and and just that that's you know so consistent with Tolstoy and we did a whole series on him mm. episodes just his his works and how he thought and his ideals you know the anarchistic uh, ideas he had and how it consi- was consistent with Russian uh, life the everyday life more than just the overall you know, the leadership and how they felt about it. It was just that day-to-day survival in Russian and Soviet history. It was amazing. But finally, your last chapter is Coda. After the future, Stalinist flows in post-socialism and beyond. How does that relate to Russia today? Because we mm-hmm. see these differences in, in differences and similarities in Russian life under Putin and you know, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. Um, Well, I mean, one of the things that I try to do at the end of the book is to think about more general implications of the, uh, I guess, structures and characteristics that the rest of the book uncovers. And so, like, one of the things that I'm interested in is, like, what happens to this um, understanding of flow uh, rhetoric around flow um, once there is no more Soviet project. And so I, I examine the sort of the afterlifes, the, the afterlives of this concept in two settings. Like one is, you know, Russia of the, I guess, of the 90s and then like of the early Putin period. Um, and the other is more globally. So i I think about American neoliberalism and the deployment of categories like flow in that context as well. Um, 
one of the things that happens in Russia, obviously, is the gradual recuperation of Stalin. Um, after a brief period at the end of the 80s and in the early 90s that is characterized by like just attempts to reveal, document, and memorialize Stalin-era crimes um, and to frame them as something like tragic and horrible um, uh, that deserves to be commemorated and never repeated. Uh, through to basically reframing Stalin as, quote, the greatest manager of the 20th century um, and a figure who is to be maybe feared but mostly admired, right? There's just been like a huge amount of historical revisionism um, that arguably already began in some quarters in the 90s, but like really accelerated under Putin. Um, and right, that's interesting in and of itself. Um, and then it's also like, similarly, it's interesting to think about, uh, like how is work conceived in the Anglo-American West, which is the context in which like I live. So it's, it's especially important to me to think about that. Um, and I think that many of those categories and like many of the kinds of things that were really prominent in modernist conceptions of labor, are making their return in the 21st century. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being with us and uh, remind our listeners that your book is coming out shortly. Yes. Uh, uh, it is great. known as Workflows, Stalinist Liquids in Russian Labor Culture from Cornell University Press. And uh, we will be having a link on our uh, website and in our uh, podcast to the book. So I recommend everybody just go out and find this to really understand more about the Stalinist period and what's going on in, in the world at that time. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having thank me. You. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we finish our three-part series with the Russian Revolution a people's perspective. So until next time, Dasidanya y spasiba zavinya manya.